Are you someone that has a fascination with science? Are you a curiously minded person? Well, you've landed on the right spot on your radio dial and in your podcast service. Why? This is a brand new episode of The S Factor coming up. We're going to talk about the latest in science news and the feature topic for today, Flame On! We're going to talk about solar flares. Coming up next on The S Factor. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to The S Factor. Science. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Welcome to another exciting edition of The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. I want to welcome you aboard my starship for this brand new episode. Enjoy your time here. We're going to travel across the solar system, go into interstellar space a little bit, talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S-Factor on Cruising 92.1 WVLT and also if you're listening to me on your favorite podcasting service, the S-Factor is now on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, tuned in, and I believe in even Pandora. You can always check the show out at scienceanimated.net. Just go up to your address bar in your favorite search in your favorite browser and type in scienceanimated.net. There you'll find a 40-minute DVD for kids called Science Animated Human Body. Really cool show there, full of action and adventure. And I've got something special I'm going to share with you in a minute here. For the month of June, if you go to your favorite podcasting service, find me there. If you give me a star rating, You'll be eligible for getting a free Science Animated Human Body DVD or stream. It's going to be your choice. I will select one lucky winner this month in June of 2021. So make sure you hit the like and subscribe to the S-Factor podcast on your favorite podcasting service. And of course, the S-Factor radio show that you're listening to right now is brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. There are always so many cool things happening in the world of science, and if you're listening to me for the first time here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, I want to welcome you aboard. You can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on this great radio station, and you can check out all of my past shows. been on the air now since December 2019, so there's a lot of cool topics, a lot of cool things that we've talked about over the last, well, almost two years now. So let's dive right in to the most interesting science news bits from the last month. The Pentagon inches towards letting AI control weapons. Drills involving swarms of drones raise questions about whether machines could outperform a human operator in complex scenarios. This is from Wired. Last August, several dozen military drones and tank-like robots took to the skies in roads 40 miles south of Seattle. Their mission, find terrorists suspected of hiding among several buildings. So many robots were involved in the operation that no human operator could keep a close eye on all of them. So they were given instructions to find 
and eliminate enemy combatants when necessary. The mission was just an exercise organized by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, a blue sky research division of the Pentagon. The robots were armed with nothing more than more, nothing more lethal than radio transmitters designated to simulate interactions with both friendly and enemy robots. The drill was one of several conducted last summer to test how artificial intelligence could help expand the use of automation in military systems, including in scenarios that are too complex and fast-moving for humans to make every critical decision. The demonstrations also reflect a subtle shift in the Pentagon's thinking about autonomous weapons, as it becomes clear that machines can outperform humans at parsing complex situations or operating at high speed. Has anyone at the Pentagon ever watched the Terminator movie franchise? This is how it starts. Personally, I don't think it's a good idea to even dip our toes into the water of using AI to autonomously control our military procedures in any way, shape, or form. I think it's very dangerous. There should almost be an international treaty that outlaws you know, such things, as far as I'm concerned. It sounds pretty scary. And, you know, I always want to know what you think about these news bits and the feature topics that we talk about here on the S-Factor. So if at any time you want to contact me, I know this short this show is pre-recorded, but if you want to email me any kind of question or comment about the show, my email address is info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. I am super interested to know what you think about this story here. General John Murray of the U.S. Army Futures Command told an audience at the U.S. Military Academy last month that swarms of robots will force military planners, policymakers, and society to think about whether a person should make every decision about using lethal force in new autonomous systems. Murray asked, Is it within a human's ability to pick out which ones have to be engaged? and then make a hundred individual decisions that is even necessary to have a human help in the loop, he added. Other comments from military commanders suggest an interest in giving autonomous weapon systems more agency. At a conference on AI in the Air Force last week, Michael Kahn, Director of Operations for the Air Force Artificial Intelligence Accelerator at MIT, and a leading voice on AI within the U.S. military, said thinking is evolving. He says AI should perform more identifying and distinguishing potential targets while humans make high-level decisions. I think that's where we're going, Khan said. A report this month from the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, an advisory group created by Congress, recommended, among other things, that the U.S. resist calls for an international ban on the development of autonomous weapons. Tenething Chung, the DARPA program manager in charge of the swarming project, says last summer's exercises were designed to explore when a human drone operator should and should not make decisions for the autonomous systems. For example, when faced with attacks on several fronts, human control can sometimes get in the way of a mission because people are unable to react quickly enough. Actually, the systems can do better for from not having someone interfere, Chung says. The drones and the wheeled robots, each about the size of a large backpack, were given an overall objective, then tapped AI algorithms to devise a plan to achieve it. Some of them surrounded buildings while others carried out surveillance sweeps. 
If you were destroyed by simulated explosives, some identified beacons representing enemy combatants and chose to attack. The U.S. and other nations have used autonomy and weapon systems for decades. Some miss missiles can, for instance, autonomously identify and attack, en and attack enemies within a given area. But rapid advances in AI algorithms will change how the military uses such systems. Off-the-shelf AI code, capable of controlling robots and identifying landmarks and targets, often with high reliability, will make it possible to deploy more systems in a wider range of situations. But as the drone demonstrations highlight, more widespread use of AI will sometimes make it more difficult to keep a human in a loop. This might prove problematic because AI technology can harbor bias or behave unpredictably. A vision algorithm trained to recognize a particular uniform might mistakenly target someone wearing similar clothing. Chung says the Swarm Project presumes that AI algorithms will improve to a point where they can identify enemies with enough reliability to be trusted. Now think about that. If these drones are swarming around and they identify the artificial intelligence, identifies someone that's maybe an innocent bystander wearing clothing that it's programmed to recognize, I think this kind of this technology has a long way to go. I mean, it 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 has to be perfected. There has to be almost a zero percent. No, I, I take that back. There has to be a zero percent probability of a mistake. And speaking of AI, Elon Musk said with Tesla that they have to reach a zero probability for the car to be truly autonomous. And that's that's why they don't recommend, and that's why there are tickets that, that go out to people that fall asleep while they're driving their Tesla. You can't do that. The technology isn't that foolproof yet. They're not near the zero percent probability, and that's what they're looking for. And it seems like it's I mean, it should be the same thing as I mean, I don't even think they should be doing using AI in weapon systems. I think it's pretty crazy. Um, again, I'd like to know what you think about that, but I don't think... I, I, I know it's nowhere near ready for anything like that. Use of AI in weapons systems has become controversial in recent years. Google faced employing, employee protest and public outcry in 2018 after supplying AI technology to the Air Force through a project known as MAVEN. To some degree, the project is part of a long history of autonomy in weapon systems, with some missiles with some missiles already capable of carrying out limited missions independent of human control. But it also shows how recent advances in AI will make autonomy more attractive and inevitable in certain situations. What's more, it highlights the trust that would be placed in technology that can still behave unpredictably. And that was from Wire again. What do you think about that? Send me an email. Let's get the discussion rolling on this. Send me an email, info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. I love interacting with you guys uh, through email. And by the way, if you want to write me, there's an, you can email me or you can go to facebook.com slash scienceanimated and also twitter.com slash scienceanimated. You can find me all over the place. Of course, uh, the S-Factor podcast widely available. If you're worried about AI taking your job anytime in the future, check this out. Peanut, the waiter robot, is proof that your job is safe. Restaurants are struggling to hire people 
So one Jersey Shore grill employed a machine. It confirms that humans remain indispensable. Now, I live in New Jersey. I know people listening on Cruising 92.1 WVLT know all about the Jersey Shore. But if you're listening to the podcast, of course, you could be from anywhere. I'm sure that what we're going through here near the shore and actually even on a more local level with me, I see many businesses struggling to hire people. There are help wanted signs, it seems, everywhere. So let's see what happened when this grill decided to use a robot. During a normal April, the owners of the Island Grill would already have a stack of applications to wade through in preparation for the busy Jersey Shore summer. But as the pandemic has waned and business has returned, the applicants haven't lined up. Here in Ocean City, there just aren't enough hands to serve coconut shrimp, quesadillas, and clam chowder in a family-friendly setting. So Allison Yu, one of the grill's owners, hired Peanut the Robot, an autonomous machine that shuttles back and forth from the kitchen, delivering food and bussing dirty dishes. It looks like a rolling bookshelf with four trays, a touchscreen, and an upward-facing infrared camera that scans markings on the ceiling in order to navigate. Very cool. Peanut uses LiDAR to detect and evade obstacles in its way. If the object is movable and she can't go around, she will say, excuse me, and she does get a little testy. Yo says with a laugh, children love it. Most people that come in think it's really cool. It kind of sounds like the Roomba vacuum. Peanut has unwittingly rolled into an unprecedented labor market. There have been plenty of anecdotal accounts of restaurants and bar owners in particular not being able to hire. One McDonald's offered iPhones to new employees who stayed for six months. You know, actually, come to think of it, I've seen many, I've seen many businesses offer perks for new new hires. Like we'll give you, you know, two thousand dollars. We'll give you this. We'll give you that. It's not a job replacement. Yo stresses about turning to robotic help. We people that own small businesses, we're in trouble right now. As the COVID-19 lockdown solidified its grip on the world's econ- economies in March 2020, whole industries ground to a halt. Masses of people were suddenly jobless as businesses closed facilities, reduced staffs, or staggered shifts to prevent the spread of the virus. If robots steal so many jobs, why weren't they coming to the economic rescue picking up the slack by supplying a workforce that couldn't get sick? The reality is that, no offense to Peanut, in the vast majority of cases, robots are still too dumb and clumsy to replace humans outright. Robots are more like tools, a way to augment the efficiency of a person. Says Phil Zing, Chief Operating Officer at Rich Tech Robotics, which makes Peanut. Peanut is part of a vanguard of machines that are just beginning to work more closely with humans, assuming parts of jobs. Peanut mostly shops dishes, The Island Grill servers still have to do everything else themselves. They know their job is not in jeopardy, Yo says of her staff, because the robots can't take your order at the table. She can't talk to you. She's only an extra device. True, Peanut never takes breaks, but it also doesn't have arms. Humans have to babysit Peanut, too. The cooks have to load the robot up and send it to a preset area of the dining room to deliver the food. Once the waiter removes the plates from the robot, they tap a button to send a machine back to the kitchen. Again, like I mentioned before, very much like a Roomba or a 
a shark IQ vacuum, the robot vacuums, you can press one button and they go right to the docking station and they have that programmed in them from the internal map. They map out an area so they know where the dock station is. It's almost like a breadcrumb situation. Now the restaurant owner Yo says they're considering using Peanut to sing happy birthday to customers. But at that point, still, you need somebody to push that button and tell her what to do, she points out. Robots also lack the kind of intelligence, manual dexterity, and people skills that any good cook, host, or server relies on to keep their diners happy. Can Peanut talk down a customer who's irate because their eggs were fried instead of scrambled? Can it play a tuna tatar, an avocado tower, and do a nice little sauce flourish around the edges? Can a robot hold back a chef who's about to rampage because someone called their creations low-grade dog food? No way. Restaurants and bars that we humans so enjoy are in fact absolute nightmares for mobile machines like Peanut. Robotics call this kind of space an unstructured environment, in which a robot has to navigate all sorts of chaos, like chairs, spills, and wandering toddlers. This in contrast to a structured environment, like a factory, in which a fixed robotic arm does repetitive work. Robots are great at that, doing the heavy lifting, riveting, or welding over and over and over in a space with no surprises. Yet even on an automotive assembly line, the very best environment for a robot to work in, machines com- complement human labor. Robots do the grunt work and humans do the fine manipulation, like detail work in a car's interior. If robots could do everything in a factory, humans could shut off the lights, go home, and let the machines churn out vehicles in the dark. In fact, the primitiveness of robots make a strong case for the value of human labor. Right now, businesses are clamoring for that labor, and there isn't enough which should be good for workers. It means workers could be choosier, looking presumably for higher pay, but also for better working conditions, says Dean Baker, a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a nonprofit think tank. So the first thing we talked about, the first news bit was about AI and integrating that in the military with these drones and some of the exercises they're they're trying out with the drones right now to see you do kind of like an early testing phase for AI, autonomously controlled weaponry. And we shift right over to this story, which is about a robotic waiter, essentially. I thoroughly believe that eventually, you know, we have the, we have major companies in this country and elsewhere in China that are working day and night to perfect artificial intelligence. In every way, you know, I think one of the last waters for AI to navigate will be replicating a humanoid and, and, you know, an actual robot, a humanoid robot who is almost indistinguishable from a human and can do just about everything a human can do. But anyway, it's going to be a while before actual people that are doing, doing laborsome things that are detailed, detailed work that's out there that humans or responsible for. It's going to be a little while before we get that advanced with AI. But that's always the goal, right? What is the goal with AI? To completely mimic us and having brain power that AI will have that will put humans to shame in some way. I think we got the edge on the creative end of things. 
It's really interesting, though. Again, email me, info at scienceanimated.net. I want to hear what you have to say about that. And by the way, you are listening to the S-Factor Radio Show podcast. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer, with scienceanimated.net. I'm going to take a quick time out, and we'll be right back. Dial, you've landed on the S Factor. Welcome back to the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome aboard. The S in S Factor stands for science, and you can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And of course, as always, Type in the S-Factor Podcast in your favorite podcast service, and you'll find me there. Why do we grow more hair on our heads than on our bodies? Humans are the only mammals that grow hair this way. Humans are the oddballs of the mammalian class. Hippos and naked mole rats aside, nearly every other mammal has fur covering its body. Humans are practically naked besides the hair on our heads. So why are people mostly hairless apart from our head hair? First, it's crucial to understand why mammals have fur in the first place, said Mark Pagel, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Reading in the United Kingdom. Fur keeps animals warm when it's cold at night and protects them from the sun during the day. Human ancestors were able to lose most of their body hair because they had the unique ability to compensate with fire, shelter, and clothing. That explains why our human ancestors could survive without most of their hair, but not why it disappeared over time. Hairlessness must have given humans some sort of evolutionary advantage. There are three main theories about what the advantage could have been, Pagel told Live Science. You ever wonder that? I mean, I know some of us humans are have more hair in our bodies than others, especially if you remember the WWF wrestler George Animal Steel. He was covered in hair. But actually, with him, it was the opposite. He had a bald head and a body full of hair. Have you ever just looked at yourself as a, as a in the mirror and said, what the heck am I? Maybe that's just me. I'm wondering what I'm looking back at. But have you ever looked into the <laughs> looked in the mirror and look at yourself? Why do I look this way? Like, why is this hair on my head? We've got two eyes. We're cool stuff. But have you ever wondered why we have this hair on our head? First, a thick coat of fur could have led ancient humans to overheat in the hot noonday sun. If you're wearing a great big fur coat in the middle of an African savanna in the hot season, 
You're going to be way too hot, Pagel said. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just take that great big fur coat off? Which is what we did. Moreover, humans evolved to have more sweat glands than our primate relatives. If we kept our long body hair, it likely would have gotten soaked with sweat, which have made it hard for the sweat to evaporate and cool us down. However, the so-called body-cooling hypothesis fails to explain some aspects of human body hair patterns, such as why men tend to be hairier than women. Of note, humans are covered with tiny and colorless vellus hairs, except on the palms, soles of the feet, lips, and nipples. But aside from this sometimes scruffy body hair, long hair tends to grow only on our heads. Now there's a theory known as aquatic ape hypothesis. That proposes that ancient humans spent a lot of time in water. Fur weighed them down while swimming, so they gradually, gradually lost their hair. However, there is evidence that humans spent a significant amount of time in water during the evolutionary past. So Pagel finds this hypothesis hard to believe. It also fails to explain why humans didn't evolve to gain their fur back after leaving the water side. Pagel proposed the third theory, Echoparasite Hypothesis, in a 2003 study published in a journal, Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences. Ectoparasites are parasites that live on the outside of the host's body. These parasites, which include lice, ticks, and fleas, are a major cause of disease and mortality across species. Ectoparasites may be less attracted to hairless skin, and it may be easier to get rid of them when they're not buried in fur. In turn, having less hair and thus fewer parasites may have presented a survival advantage. So what we're trying to do here is figure out why we have this hair on our heads. We lost it on our body. There's no fur on our bodies. We have this thick hair on our heads. As bipeds, or animals that walk upright on two legs, our heads are directly exposed to the sun. Near the equator, where humans evolved, sun exposure can be overbearing, and head hair helps people from overheating. It's sort of a built-in hat, Pagel said. Head hair also helps retain heat at night. Our brains are relatively small compared to the rest of our bodies, but they're enormously metabolically active. Pagel said this activity produces heat, Head hair could insulate this area of concentrated warmth. Sexual selection, sexual selection may also play a role. Humans don't just have head hair. We style it. Ancient people may have too. Hair doesn't fossilize well, so researchers don't have much direct evidence of this, except for, for preserved mummies in places such as Egypt and Peru. However, researchers have studied modern-day indigenous people who haven't had contact with the outside world, and found that they also style their hair, suggesting that their ancestors did too. This hair care may attract a mate, Pagel said. We don't just have head hair, Pagel said, but we have it in the form that we can make really attractive to members of the opposite sex. So maybe that's what it's all about, attracting a mate. Maybe that's why we still have it on our head. Maybe it's to prevent burning of our scalp, but we have it on our head maybe just to attract a mate. Who knows? It's all up for debate here. <laughs> but if you have a comment about that last story from Live Science, you can contact me at info at scienceanimated.net. Info at scienceanimated.net. And as we're on the topic of head hair, think about how much money is spent in a year. I'd have to look that up on not just like hairstyling products, but 
what about the medication that keeps the hair you have left? Or what about minoxidil? Head hair is very important to us. Of course, some of us just shave it completely off, especially those where it's getting a little thin. Again, if you're just joining me, the S-Factor is brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. That's my website. On there is a product called Science Animated Human Body. It's a 40-minute DVD for kids of all ages. It's an exciting thrill ride through the human body, the likes of which you've never seen before, and I guarantee your kids will love it or your money back. And what I'm doing for the month of June 2021 if you go to my, uh, your favorite podcast service and you type in The S Factor Podcast, The S Factor Podcast, and you hit a like and subscribe, send me a quick note that you did that through my Facebook page at facebook.com slash scienceanimated, and you'll be entered in a drawing this month where I'm going to give away a copy of Science Animated Human Body. You can either choose the DVD or the stream. I'll be doing that this month at random. All you got to do is subscribe to the S-Factor podcast. SpaceX will launch baby squid in tardigrades to the space station this week. SpaceX is gearing up to launch its 22nd cargo mission to the International Space Station, the ISS, this week, and tucked inside the Dragon cargo capsule will be some interesting organisms. Bobtail squid and tardigrades, also known as water bears, will be traveling to the orbital outpost to help researchers answer some key questions about spaceflight. Their ride is a shiny new Falcon 9 rocket dubbed B-1067. If all goes as planned, SpaceX's CRS-2 mission will blast off from Pad 39A at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida on Thursday. Baby bobtail squid will be among the various research experiments and cargo scheduled to ship to the ISS. A relative of the cuttlefish, these tiny cephalopods are an interesting organism as they glow in the dark. That's thanks to a specialized organ in their ink sac that lights up at night. Researchers are hopeful that the squids could help shed some light on how microbes and animals react to spaceflight. To that end, NASA is sending newly hatched squid paralarvae to space to study how the relationship between the squid and a group of symbiotic microbes behaves in microgravity. Microbes play a significant role in the normal development of animal tissues and in maintaining human health. Animals, including humans, rely on our microbes to maintain a healthy digestive and immune system. We do not fully understand how spaceflight alters these beneficial interactions. The experiment uses a glow-in-the-dark bobtail squid to address these important issues in animal health. Now, tardigrades, also known as water bears, can live in the most extreme environments, making them a fascinating organism to study. Researchers have been able to sequence the tardigrades' genome and have gone one step further by developing methods of determining how environmental conditions affect gene expression in tardigrades. Now, as part of the investigation, scientists hope to identify which genes are involved in the adaptation and survival of tardigrades in hard-stress environments, like microgravity. Principal investigator Thomas Boothby said in a statement, One of the things that we are really keen to do is understand how tardigrades are surviving and reproducing in these environments and whether we can learn anything about the tricks that they're using and, to, and adapt them to safeguard astronauts. 
The experiment will run for two months on station, and the tardigrades will ship to the ISS Frozen and be subsequently thawed after the experiment is activated. A reverse genetic approach was developed for this investigation, which will use RNA interference to directly investigate the role a specific gene plays in tolerating the environment. Identifying the mechanisms used by the tardigrades to protect themselves from the environment could help researchers better protect astronauts. And if you ever saw this tardigrade, also known as a water bear, it's a very cool looking organism. There's some really super clear images of this microorganism. And uh, I, I can see why they call him the water bear. We're going to take a quick time out. You are listening to The S Factor with your host, Chuck Shazer. We'll be right back. that dial, you've landed on the S Factor. Our sun is very active. What is a solar flare? What could it mean for us if we get a direct hit? We're going to go into that. Following information is from space.com. Though the sun lies 93 million miles from Earth, its unceasing activity assures an impact on our planet far beyond the obvious light and heat. From a constant stream of particles in the form of solar wind to the unpredictable bombardment from solar flares and coronal mass ejections, Earth often feels the effects of its stellar companions. Less notable are the sunspots crossing the solar surface. They are related to the more violent interactions. All of these fall under the definition of space weather. Now you may be asking, what is a solar flare? Is it like a and oftentimes people may think, that is a solar flare, like these burps from the sun's surface, from the atmosphere of the sun, that it's like a flame that's hurling towards Earth? Not necessarily. It's radiation, charged particles. Now the high magnetic fields in the sunspot producing active regions give rise to explosions known as solar flares. When the twisted field lines cross and reconnect, Energy explodes outward with a force exceeding that of millions of hydrogen bombs. Can you imagine such a thing? The power and destruction of a hydrogen bomb in one of these flares shooting off has the force exceeding millions of those. That's hard to even wrap your head around. Now, temperatures in the outer layer of the sun, known as the corona, typically fall around a few million Kelvin. As solar flares push through the corona... They heat its gas to anywhere from 10 to 200 million K. As solar flares push through the corona, they heat its gas to anywhere from 10 to 20 million K, occasionally reaching as high as 100 million K. According to NASA, 
The energy released in a solar flare is the equivalent of millions of 100 megaton hydrogen bombs exploding at the same time. Because solar flares form in the same active regions as sunspots, they're connected to these smaller, less violent events. Flares tend to follow the same 11-year cycle. To peak of the cycle, several flares may occur each day with an average lifetime of only 10 minutes. The enormous sunspot of 2014 fired off several powerful solar flares. Now, the largest of these is the X-class flares. They have the most significant effect on Earth. They can cause long-lasting radiation storms in the upper atmosphere and trigger radio blackouts. Medium-sized M-class flares can cause brief radio blackouts in the polar regions and the occasional minor radiation storms. And the C-class flares have few noticeable consequences. When the energized particles exploding from solar flares race toward us, they arrive in only 8 minutes. Think about that, folks. The sun is millions of miles away. Millions. It only takes 8 minutes for the solar flare, the radiation from such, to reach Earth. Now, when this happens, astronauts in space risk being hit by these hazardous particles, and manned missions to the Moon or Mars must take this danger into account. Everyone else is shielded by the Earth's atmosphere and magnetic field. Sensitive electronic equipment in space can also be damaged by these energetic particles. You hear me talk about this on the S-Factor from time to time. We talk about, of course, there are naturally occurring geological threats from Earth, but you also have these celestial events, like a solar flare. It can be catastrophic. Now, you know, of course... We just talked about what a solar flare is. We have these energized particles, radiation, supercharged particles that can, if they hit us directly, can wipe out our electronics. Now, we have a protective magnetic field around us, but if we get something powerful enough, it could fry our electrical grid, and suddenly we would be without electric for, you know, there's, I've heard estimates from 7 to 10 years it would take to restore that. Can you imagine the madness that would ensue in our country if the power went out like that? I mean, it's, it's something to be taken very seriously, critically seriously, uh, to prevent something like that. Hardening the grid is a good thing. You know, I've talked about it before. Contact your local congressman, senator. Say, listen, I, we, we spend money on so much stuff in this country. I, I think it would only cost three or five, three to five billion to harden our electrical grid. And we also have to harden the satellites, you know, because of GPS. I mean, those things get wiped out. That's a problem. Yeah, this is something that not many people even think about during their daily life, you know. And honestly, before I learned about it, uh, I've known about this, you know, for years now, but I I never thought about it before I learned. I didn't even know it was a threat. Makes you realize how, how fortunate we are uh, to be at a time on Earth when the planet is not so hostile to human existence and and also that we haven't had a super threat from space in the form of an asteroid or something like this at least and that means a lot it means a lot for our advancement as a civilization we talk about you know i talk about a lot of futurism type what ifs with technology science and technology on this show and one of these solar flares hitting us directly and frying the grid i mean that that puts all of that in jeopardy not doesn't stop it from happening necessarily, but could have put us back for several years. That's something that should be taken seriously. I wish uh, politicians would, would, would do something about it. And, you know, I just think they need to hear from us. We, 
writing to them and telling them that, hey, you know, please do something about this. Now, absorbing x-rays affects the atmosphere. The increase in heat and energy result in an expansion of the Earth's atmosphere, or excuse me, an expansion of the Earth's ionosphere. Man-made radio waves travel through this portion of the upper atmosphere, so radio communications can be disrupted by sudden unpredictable growth. Similarly, satellites previously circling through vacuum-free space can find themselves caught in the expanded sphere. The resulting friction slows down their orbit and can bring them back to Earth sooner than intended. Despite their size and energy, solar flares are almost never visible optically. The bright emission of the surrounding photosphere, where the sun's light originates, tends to overshadow even these explosive phenomenon. Radio and optical emissions can be observed on Earth. However, the, since X-rays and gamma rays fail to penetrate the atmosphere, only space-based telescopes can detect their signature. Sometimes it's not actually, sometimes it's not activity, but a lack of it that can increase deadly particles towards Earth. The interactions of hot plasma of the corona with the sun's magnetic field can create coronal holes, which permit plasma to stream rapidly from the sun. The effects linked to coronal holes are generally milder than those of coronal mass ejections, but, but when the outflow of solar particles is intense, they pose risk to satellites in orbit, NASA said in a statement. In 2017, scientists were able to link high-energy gamma-ray bursts to solar flares for the first time using NASA's Fermi Gamma-Ray Space Telescope in its Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory. These particles must travel some 300,000 miles within about five minutes of the eruption to produce this light. Now, like solar flares, coronal mass ejections bring an increase in radiation to astronauts and electronics in space. But unlike flares, they also bring charged particles of matter that interact with the field surrounding our planet. The results vary depending on the size, speed, and magnetic strength of the particles. When the particles reach the Earth's magnetic sphere, they stretch and distort, much like a tree in a strong wind. The sudden increase in power can damage sensitive electronic equipment Power transformers can overload, causing long-lasting blackouts. Long metal structures like oil and gas pipelines can carry currents, which can enhance their corrosion over time and lead to devastating effects if proper safety measures are not in place. The resulting variations in the ionosphere can disrupt GPS signals giving inaccurate readings. We were just talking about that. Now, on September 1st, 1859, Richard Carrington and Richard Hodgson, both amateur English astronomers, independently made the first observations of a solar flare, one that resulted in the largest geomagnetic storm ever recorded. Auroras, which normally occupy the polar regions, were visible in tropical latitudes. Again, why is something that odd happening? Because you get a big enough coronal mass ejection that, the mag that our magnetic field can't block, and you'll have these auroras in places where they normally are, do not occur, in this case, in 19, excuse me, in 1859, they saw auroras in tropical latitudes. Now, back then, telegraph operators reported being shocked, literally, by their instruments. Even after unhooking them from the power supply, messages could still be transmitted, powered by the currents in the atmosphere. Think about that. Back in 1859, when this occurred, they unhooked the telegraph, and they could still send messages, meaning that they were powered by the currents in the atmosphere. That's how powerful this was in this particular event here. Now that 
went on to become known as the Carrington event. Now, that would be far more devastating if it happened today, given the greater reliance on electronics and the expanded power supply. Though scientists think that a powerful coronal mass ejection from 2012 that missed Earth would have wreaked havoc for several years have it collided with the planet. So there are many times when these things just miss us. So essentially, we've just been lucky. We've been missing these bullets. 1859, we did not miss the bullet with the Carrington event. But think about it, we are using telegraphs back then. Had we back then had our current energy-hungry society, it would have wreaked havoc. So we, we've been narrowly missing these things. So I think it's high time that we spend some money and harden our electrical grid. <laughs> I mean, it just makes sense to me. I have come away from a recent studies more convinced than ever that Earth and its inhabitants were incredibly fortunate that the 2012 eruption happened when it did. Daniel Baker at the University of Colorado who led a study of the storm and space weather, said in a statement. So that's a little about solar flares, what they are, coronal mass ejections, pretty serious stuff. And it gives you a, a whole new appreciation for the sun, and not only the, the fact that life is reli so reliant on our burning star, but... We don't want to be in the way of one of these coronal mass ejections because the results could be devastating for, you know, a civilization that relies so heavily on electric as we do. So hopefully they'll, they'll do something about that and, and take care of that. And if you feel so inclined to reach out to your congressman or senator, then give them a, a, a little nudge and say, listen, this is a, a serious threat to everyone. Maybe we should do something about it. We're talking about the entire human civilization. So really important, and I know it gave me a newfound uh, respect for the sun, that's for sure. I want to thank you for listening and inviting me into your home or your car or your mobile device and listening to the podcast or the radio show. I appreciate it very much. Really a pleasure to bring this science news to you and a featured topic. You can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on Cruise 92.1 WVLT and your favorite podcasting service. And to support the show, support my advertisers, and please check out scienceanimated.net. Some great content there, including Science Animated, the Human Body, which is a 40-minute animated DVD, fun for kids of all ages, adults love the movie. $9.99 is the stream. You can watch it as many times as you want. You can watch it on any device. So go up to your, open up your browser, go up to the address bar and type in scienceanimated.net. And when you go to your, your favorite podcasting service and you want to find the S-Factor, which is all of the past S-Factors are there as well, this one will be available in a day or so. So let's say you go to Google, all you got to do is type in the S-Factor podcast and I will pop up number one right there. So again, thank you for joining me. I can't wait to talk to you again. Feel free to reach out to me, info at scienceanimated.net. And don't forget, subscribe and give me a star rating on the podcast, and you may win a free copy of Science Animated, The Human Body. Until next time, stay curious and be well. You have been listening to The S-Factor with your host, 
Chuck Shazer, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. See you next time, everybody. You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WBLT.